for Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose. I'm Ken Volio. There is no lack of research and data suggesting that an authentic purpose is good for business, for society, and for the planet. When companies lead with purpose and root it in business strategy, a cascade of benefits are likely to follow, from greater customer loyalty and advocacy, to increased sales and innovation, to employee retention and brand growth. One man who needs no convincing about the power of purpose is Abdel Aziz, founder and chief purpose officer at Conspiracy of Love, a global social impact marketing agency. His whole business model is shaped around the idea of creating a better world through purpose. And in his work with some of the world's most iconic brands, Abdel hopes to help people use business and culture as forces for good. A true storyteller, Abdel is the co-author of two books on brand purpose, including the best-selling Good is the New Cool, Marketing Like You Give a Damn, and he's a frequent contributor to Forbes. Aftel joins me to share his thoughts on the purpose movement and the trends that are reshaping the business landscape for the greater good. Aftel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ken. Delighted to be here. So you released a report, one that I downloaded recently, that makes a real strong, compelling argument for purpose. And yet, as I'm sure you know, there are still skeptics out there who say purpose is a bunch of BS. So what's your message to them? Well, I'd start by saying, you know, in the work that we do at Conspiracy of Love, uh, what we're seeing is kind of like a, a global proliferation of the idea that business should be a force for good. And I mean global. We are currently working with clients in North America, in Australia, Middle East and Africa, in Brazil and Chile. And so it's now gone from being a kind of a North American centric idea to something that's truly global. Mm -hmm. And I think what's driving it is some massive tectonic shifts in society. You know, and we outlined them in that report, the business case for purpose, which we released, which is on our on our website. Those three shifts are consumers who, especially when it comes to younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, are voting with their wallets and clearly voting for brands which not only meet all of their classical expectations around a great product at a great price, et cetera, but who are also looking for brands to share their values and show how they contribute as well. And, and the, the data is rich and diverse in terms of how that isn't going away. You still need a great product at a great price, but in a highly commoditized market, purpose is a thing that can make the difference. Secondly, it's the rise of what we call activist employees. And that was really something which we've been surprised by those people entering the workforce and having a clear point of view as to how those companies that they choose to work for should not only kind of talk about their values, but walk the walk too. And we see numerous examples every week where now the, I like to say, you know, citing those old horror movies, the call is coming from inside the house where, you know, uh, uh, the CEOs and CMOs I talk to in private, they're saying, I don't know what's happening on our Slack channels. I don't know what's happening in our town hall meetings, but people are, are uh, really kind of challenging us in public openly to take action on issues. And so that era of top-down command and control um, you know, expecting the employees in your company to stay silent and just blindly follow your orders. I think that's gone. I, I always like to say 
hey, these are the kids who are protesting in the streets on a Sunday. You think they're going to walk into your office on a Monday and just put aside their values and just just say, okay, I'm just going to buckle down. So there's a real kind of upswelling inside companies. You can see this manifesting in, in ERG groups, for example, as a great place where employees with common purpose get together and talk about their values and their identities that leaders would be foolish to ignore. This is the new reality. And the third is the rise of impact investing and ESG investing. And despite all the attempts to try and besmirch it as woke capitalism, I think that when you look past all of the the paranoia and hype, what you're seeing is investors saying, yeah, the companies that are going to give me the most returns are going to be the ones that are most ethically managed, are going to be the ones that have sustainability at their core. They are the ones that are going to be best protected against this barrage of societal and environmental crises that we seem to be coming up against almost every single day. So you put those three things together, uh, investors, consumers, and employees. And if you're a CEO, those are three of your biggest stakeholder groups who are saying, we want something to change internally. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of resistance to this idea because what we are witnessing is a transformation of capitalism itself. And it's had a great... I don't know, 500 year run since feudalism as a system. There are some very entrenched interests, traditional shareholders who don't want this to change, who are very happy with the status quo. And those are the ones who are loudest in complaining about this. And so I kind of spend very little time trying to argue with them, except to say, why don't you show me some data? Uh, why don't you show me something that's more than just your opinion? I've got a hundred pieces of data to show you. And so that's my challenge back to them. You know, don't just give me some talking points. Show me some data to show, to show that this is not how capitalism mm -hmm. is evolving. You mentioned that you work with global companies. I'm curious, the transformation that you just talked about, are you seeing that across the globe or specifically within the United States? No, this is what I was saying. You know, when we started Conspiracy five years ago, I would say 95% of our clients were in North America and maybe Western Europe as well. Today, we work with clients across South America in Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, Peru, where though their brands are at the vanguard of embracing the idea of, of adding a layer of social impact to what they're doing. Um, we work with brands in Australia where there's a, a myriad categories which are now waking up to this. And we do global work. We're doing work with Sephora right now, which is looking for a purpose platform that's across Middle East and Africa, China, and Western Europe and North America. So it's gone global. It has gone global. And it is fascinating to see the, the kind of permutations of this in different countries and different parts of the world. These are challenging times, as you know. Companies are laying off staff. You've heard, heard a lot about this whole quiet quitting movement that seems to be taking place. Can you just talk about, a bit about the importance of staying true to your purpose despite the times? Well, first of all, I don't think it's quite quitting. I think so. whoever came up with that came up with a catchy title. But what it actually is, is uh, employees standing up for themselves and their rights for the first time and not wanting to be part of a culture that treats them poorly, uh, that doesn't value them, that doesn't think about their safety and well-being. And because we've had this global pandemic for two years, which I think has caused a massive ripple effect in the number of people thinking about their own purpose, thinking about their life and their work and how they want to leave a legacy behind. 
I think that's what's forced a complete uh, reassessment of or how a working life should be. It should be about having the dignity. It should be about having kind of um, a, a workplace, a workplace where you're not discriminated against, where you're not forced to work uh, overtime. I saw a hilarious uh, um, lawsuit about uh, I think it was a French gentleman who protested against organized fun, and he said I, I shouldn't be asked to come in, you know, after hours to have you know, enforced fun when I need to get home to my wife and my family and he sued his employer and won. And so there's a sea change happening. And I think that's where it's not quite quitting. It's people just saying, I've had enough of you workspace and, you know, company X. Uh, I don't like the way you treat people. So I'm going to go on to somewhere else that does. And what we're seeing is those companies that take the time to really think about how their employees want meaning, not just money in terms of the careers that they have. Those employees are the ones which have much higher retention rates, so people sticking with them much longer, much better recruitment rates. So new talent saying, I want to come and work for your company because of the culture and what I see about it you know, in a transparent and authentic way. And so there is a, a moment where what people look for in a job has changed quite dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, they're still looking for pay and benefits, don't get me wrong, just like consumers are looking for product and price. There are some non-negotiables that need to be in place. But beyond that, when they look into the heart of a workplace, what they're looking for is a place where their work will be honored, where their work will, can seem like it matters. And I think that's where those purpose-driven companies are the ones that will attract the best talent and keep them for a lot longer in a way that the others don't as well. And you talked, you mentioned there about the importance of having a personal purpose. Do you think that often gets lost in the purpose conversation? That yeah. I mean, let's take it to the level of a CEO, for example. If he doesn't have a personal purpose, how can he be purposeful for the organization? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. We're writing book number three, Bobby and myself. And book number three, book one was about brand purpose, market like you give a damn. Book two was about corporate purpose, which was about, you know, uh corporate transformation, as we call it. And book number three is about um, personal purpose and, and how to find purpose and meaning in your work. Because I I do think it is the existential question of our time. To expand on it a bit, if I may, sure. you know, in the research we've been doing, sometimes I first of all think it's easier to talk about it if you replace the word purpose with meaning. It becomes a little bit easier to understand. If you look at where people historically found meaning in their lives, being a parent, is a huge source of meaning for those of us who are parents. I'm the dad of an eight-year-old son. That gives me a huge source about, of meaning, of being of service to my son, Nuri, and being there for him. Your community was a huge source of meaning. Your immediate community, your neighborhood, or feeling part of a, of a, of a larger civic community was often the time, the place that you'd find that sense of meaning. Um, your faith, for a lot of people, is is the source of that meaning and purpose in their life. It's a deep, you know, river of that as well. And there could be other things like your patriotic affiliation, you know, that where you get meaning from. And it's interesting to think that those, all four of those areas have actually deteriorated in the last 50 years. Families aren't staying together as much. People aren't going into organized religion as much there is more social isolation amongst us. People don't know who their neighbors are who live next door to them. 
And when it comes to patriotism, that's now just dissolved into very ugly polarization, right? So it's really interesting that while those sources have declined, there is a growing expectation that work, the place that we spend eight hours a day, five days a week, 40 years of our life, that shouldn't be devoid of meaning. There should be something that you get from it that is not just transactional. And it used to be this rare thing when you said, oh, somebody's found their calling, right? In the in that some sort of mystical kind of moment. But I genuinely think that there has been this sea change and, and COVID only accelerated it, where people are now looking for the meaning in their work, especially those younger generations again. But all the research shows across the board, people want to feel like their work matters and that they're helping to contribute to solving the problems of the world. And so our work with companies, we, we do an incredible workshop called GPS to Purpose, which I can talk about, is really about helping individual employees find their own individual purpose and articulate it, and then find the connective tissue to the company purpose. Then you have that bond, right? It's not all of it. It's not 100% of it, because remember, there's many sources of meaning that you get. Sure. But that place that you come to work at the difference between a good purpose-driven company and a great one is the size and depth of that attachment that its employees have to the company's purpose. And that's what makes them show up every day and give 100%. Thanks for sharing that perspective. It's terrific. Abdel, you uh, released another report, this one for a fee, uh, called The Future of Good. And it talks about a lot of emerging trends that are coming. I'm hoping that you can share one or two with our audience and perhaps provide an example or two of brands that are advancing the purpose narrative. So the future of good was a report that Conspiracy of Love decided to put out with an incredible features consultancy called Light Years. And I want to give a shout out to Lucy Green, who is our partner in this. She's an incredible trend forecaster. And we would see, you know, trend reports about another future of retail or the future of fashion, or the future of, you know, a particular category. And in our work where we were seeing all of this incredible innovation happening in, in, in social impact and in environmental impact, we just didn't see one place where somebody was bringing it all together and saying, Hey, every year there's something really interesting happening where you can learn from a part of our work, by the way, is also, uh, helping companies with purpose-driven innovation. So helping come up with new-to-the-world products and services which have an ethical or social intent. And so we decided to put it all together into one place. It's a 114-page report. There's 43 emerging trends that we track. And it really is a chance to look ahead and at the world and see uh, what is at the absolute cutting edge. Let's talk about some of the some of the macro things we look at. So the, some of the big themes that we look at in the report are things like radical inclusivity, sustainable futures, um, universal well-being. We spend a lot of our time thinking about the idea of inclusive growth as a vanguard for a company to really consider. And what we mean by this is instead of thinking of DE&I as an internal defensive kind of tactic to be used to deflect criticism that you know the company's management is not diverse enough or whatever where we're what we're seeing some really interesting advancements is companies thinking about inclusivity as a way to drive growth 
to drive profitability, not only by catering to the massive demographic shifts that are happening in America, America will be majority minority by 2040, but by really ensuring that there is cultural fluency and cultural sophistication in how you talk to those audience and audiences and what you come up with for them. A fantastic example of, uh, you know, inclusive growth is the uh, company Fenty from Rihanna. If you think about what she's managed to do in the lingerie space or the makeup space, she's catering to an audience that has always been there, but who have just felt overlooked by mainstream fashion brands, by mainstream beauty brands, who didn't, you almost had them as an afterthought. And I think Fenty at last count was a billion dollar valuation plus company. And so that's where when we look at these companies and saying, hey, not only should you have diversity inside your company so you reflect the outside, you should make use of that incredible fountain of innovation inside your company to look around the corner and going, who are we not talking to and who is out there that we could serve better? And then use that to drive innovation and come up with white space products and services that have unmet needs as well. Another uh, another fascinating trend that we're seeing on the environmental side is really the thing, again, of going from thinking about sustainability as a shield, as something which is about taking a defensive approach to saying, hey, we're going to be net zero by this date or net you know uh, zero plastic by this date. And again, flipping it and saying, no, there is a an upside to to be tackled as the world goes through probably the biggest transformation since the industrial revolution as we decarbonize an entire planet there are going to be opportunities to create products and services out there uh, one of the exciting things that we've been tracking is is carbon capture products meaning companies who are making products and services using carbon dioxide we feature one of them air company uh, in Future of Good, they're an incredible company based out of Brooklyn who started by making air vodka, vodka made from CO2. Um, they made moved on to fragrances, but the real killer has been uh, making sustainable aviation fuel. So think about this. The biggest problem we're facing from a climate perspective is uh, things like flights, right, which obviously put a lot of carbon emissions out. Imagine having a fuel that is able to actually be made from CO2 um, and which can be zero emissions. That is a game changer. I think they already have millions of uh, pounds of orders from JetBlue and Delta saying we want to buy buy this stuff. And so my friend Nelson Switzer, who is an incredible thinker in this space, has, has coined the term uh, climate gigacorn, which is a company that will make a billion dollars from removing a gigaton of emissions from the air, right? And so that to me is like inclusive growth. It's a way of reframing this this idea of impact away from being something which is about deflecting criticism and really embracing and saying, no, it's a huge source of innovation mm -hmm. and could put our company in, in a very good place for years to come. In conducting research for this report, FDEL, did was there a particular business sector or sectors that surprised you on the purpose front that others can learn from? It's more that each category has a purpose-driven leader who is excelling and becoming the category disruptor by adding purpose into it. That's probably a better way to say it, whether it is, you know, Fenty in, in beauty or fashion or Airco in vodka or others in food or uh, in finance. There is always a, a an unbundler 
of the category who is coming at it from a completely different place from the from the established kind of giants and the incumbents and that's what we're fascinated by how they are adding purpose to a credible product incredible price mm-hmm. and winning new consumers by adding that to to the mix do you believe in this day and age that purpose must take the form of a social cause well you know in our principles of purpose book we we have this council which is purpose doesn't have to be political and i'll start there you know and i say that's a trap that many brands fall into you know that they they took a political stance which led to them having a lot of fallout in terms of their audience. I think M&M's is going through this right now with some stupid thing about their shoes, right? And somehow it got caught up in some sort of polarizing conversation. Yes. And so, which I think it's very stupid, by the way. But I think that's where our counsel to brands and companies is, look, there's a myriad number of problems in the world that you can help solve that aren't partisan right and and can be something which has broad appeal everybody wants better opportunities for themselves better opportunities for their kids safer neighborhoods we'd like to say purpose should solve problems from the everyday to the epic it doesn't have to be epic stuff like climate change that is being solved it could just be everyday stuff that a brand can show up in a humble way and say hey we're, we're just trying to make this this bit a little bit better you know so i think that's where there's a handful of brands who have chosen to be what we would call an activist brand, like Patagonia is an activist brand, Ben and Jerry's is an activist brand. They can do that because they have won the credibility to do that over multiple decades. And they have an internal culture which doesn't shy away from conflict um, and which is is very happy to wade into it. 99.9% of brands aren't in that position. And it would be extremely hard to do that and still run a business. And so our counselors. You don't have to get political. Instead, take a beat, figure out what you can consistently and authentically get behind over a five to 10 year commitment. So this isn't run and gun. This is saying, hey, if you find this problem in the world that is is intimately linked to your business model, that's a great place to say because you will never run out of ways to innovate against that problem and try and solve it. Hey there, Beyond Profit listener. The ANA Champions of Growth podcast explores the various aspects of the industry's growth agenda with the goal of helping marketing leaders create a stronger, more sustainable economic future for their brands. With topics ranging from brand safety and ad fraud to marketing organization, host Matthew Schwartz discusses the topics that matter most with our industry's foremost leaders. Learn more by visiting ana.net slash podcasts. And now back to the show. I am speaking today with Afdel Aziz, founder and chief purpose officer of the agency Conspiracy of Love. Afdel, I mentioned your two books. The first one, Market Like You Give a Damn, shares seven principles for marketing with purpose. One is treat people like citizens, not consumers. Why is that so important? You've hit upon one of my favorite topics. So I spent 20 years as a brand marketer, right, Ken? So I was at Procter & Gamble doing uh, Max Factor and Vidal Sassoon, by the way. First two jobs straight out of college, hair and makeup. Great for a 23-year-old South Asian guy. (laughs) Um, Clueless, clueless in the makeup aisle. I worked on Nokia. I worked in Heineken. I worked in Absolute Vodka. All incredible brands. 
worked with some incredible people who I love daily. But we all use the same language of consumers. And after a while, I was like, isn't that a very narrow and transactional way to talk about another human being in terms of what they consume? And that's the only lens we think about. How are you consuming my product? How are you consuming my service? And I think it it kind of dehumanizes people in a way. And and our first book, what our counsel was, think about people as as citizens with a broad range of interests and things that they're passionate about. And if you can find that common passion between you and them, then suddenly you can have a rich and authentic dialogue with them about that topic. Look at I don't know, REI and protecting the outdoors and, you know, how much in sync that topic is with that company and that company's customers, you know. It, it's about finding that topic where you and your company culture feel passionately about solving or defending, but you know that your consumers also feel passionately about that. And then by you, the brand showing up, and, and there's another one of our principles, which is show up as the helper, not the hero. Don't make yourself the white knight, the savior galloping on a white horse to solve this problem, but instead offer yourself up as a helper to saying, hey, uh, here's what we're trying to do to try and solve this problem. Will you come on this journey with us? That gets you out of a lot of trouble, I think, uh, in trying to do this kind of work right. I, I assume that treating people as citizens extends beyond consumers to all stakeholders. It's interesting if you reapply that to saying, treat your employees as citizens, right? I think that's also where there's a lot of diffidence going. Think about ERGs, right? Think about ERGs as a perfect example. A sustainability ERG comprises people who are passionate about sustainability, right? That's an employee base saying, hey, we really care about this issue and topic. And so we're going to self-organize ourselves inside your company to try and tackle this problem, right? So yes, absolutely, you should pay attention to when your employees are also thinking about themselves in terms of citizens uh, and wise companies find ways to really show up and help support their efforts as well. Talk a bit, Fdel, about how today's, you know, quote unquote, culture creators are changing the way brands do business and market themselves. Yeah, so our uh, in the first book, we really talked about this try this trinity of a brand, a nonprofit, and a culture creator being the perfect freeway alliance that you could build to really um, make change. I'll give you one of my favorite examples with a client that we worked with, which was Sour Patch Kids. Wonderful brand, wonderful team there. The brand had made commitments towards racial justice. This is in the wake of the tragedy of George Floyd, but they weren't clear as to what they could do. Um, And so they brought us in to really look at their brand purpose and their brand purpose is around positive mischief. And we went, Ooh, that's, that's really interesting. Sour Patch Kids, positive mischief. And right around that time, if you remember, there was the wonderful documentary coming out called Good Trouble, which is about Congressman John Lewis, an incredible change maker. And we were like, Ooh, good trouble. That's really interesting. And so we partnered with partnered them with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, which is the oldest black college fund dedicated to HBCUs. They made a million dollar commitment over many years to fund 
what is now called the Mischief for Change scholarships. And these are scholarships where it doesn't matter what you study, all that matters is your your commitment is to go and make some good trouble in the society when you graduate. Now, here's the way it gets interesting. Chris Paul, the basketball superstar, found out about this and volunteered to be part of the campaign for no money. He just said, this is great. I love it. I'm going to lend my cultural credibility to it. And the next thing you know, he's on YouTube saying, hi, everybody, this is Chris Paul. And I think he even, the Sapatch Kids team told me he even volunteered to evaluate the application forms. Now think about this. This is one of the most highly paid athletes on the planet, Hmm. but it connected with his purpose and what he stood for. And so we had this wonderful three-way alliance there. And I think the lesson to brands is saying, it's all too easy for a brand to pick up the phone and say, Hey, can you get me a you know talent booker who can find me a talent, you know, needs to come and do this spot or this endorsement. But if you take a second to find those allies with common purpose, in fact, think about culture creators as citizens to mm-hmm. your point and go, who's interested in this space? Oh, they, they're interested in this space. You may not always get them for free, but all I know is you will get a much deeper partnership and a much more authentic partnership if you if you take the time to work with them. And that's what's really fascinating today. I can't think of a major A-list culture creator who doesn't have a cause or impact that they're associated with. You know, it, it used to be something they'd do in private or they'd kind of like, you know, keep under the radar or, but I, I think about, you know, Serena Gomez with her campaign around mental health. You know, I think about the incredible work Lady Gaga has been doing for years around LGBTQ mm-hmm. or whatever. I think about LeBron James and Spring Hill and advocacy and building school. It's pretty much, I can't think of anybody who's out there in the public sphere who is not also using their cultural capital to generate social capital to create, to help solve problems as well. And that's really encouraging. And that's where we really encourage brands to think about finding your allies, which is another one of our principles in the book. Find your allies with common purpose. You talked a bit about the importance of activating purpose around shared values. That can be tricky sometimes for global organizations. And I'm curious if you have any advice, seeing how that you do work with global companies. How do you rally the troops around purpose on a global level? The thing we find is that First of all, so just to just to pull back the curtain on the work that we do, we, we talk about companies going on a purpose transformation journey. Our job is to lead them. And at the starting point, they may have, if we're talking to us, they probably have already uh, you know, a good sustainability plan, a good DE&I plan, CSR, philanthropy. They have all of the kind of building blocks of purpose. But what they haven't done is put it together in a really integrated and powerful way. And that's what we come in and help them do. And we do that first by finding that articulation, that really compelling articulation of how this, why this company stands for, uh, why does it exist? What does it stand for? In a way that becomes a rallying cry internally inside the company. And the way we do that, by the way, is also by going and talking to the employees first and seeing what's in Sorry. their hearts and minds. We often say our job is just to, is to hold up a mirror and say, this is how you guys already feel and talk about it. All we've done is just distill it down so that it's not a bunch of consultants coming up with marketing speak. It's actually reflecting truly and honestly back to the company who they are. 
And if you do it that way, then it's much easier to have a conversation about what comes next about activating those values mm -hmm. because you're building on something very solid that's already there. And that's where you have to do the work to make sure that there aren't any deficiencies in the culture. We like to say no company is perfect, just like no human being is perfect. But you have to make sure your employees feel safe, that they're well paid, that they are, you know, feeling loved before you ask them to look at this higher order thing called their purpose, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs for a reason. If you don't feel safe, if you don't feel valued, if you don't, if you feel like there's a problem, there's no point having a conversation around what your higher purpose is because people are too preoccupied with dealing with just the day to day. But if all of those things are in place, and I grant you it's tough right now, right? With the, especially in the tech sector with the layoffs going on, if hundreds of thousands of people are losing their jobs, having a higher meaning in their job is not the top of their list in terms of like the most important thing. That there, there, there is is, I got to get a job. I got to keep my family paid, you know, my family eating. It is important to note that the preconditions for purpose have to be right. But if it is, then what comes out is almost this, this wonderful river of energy that can be harnessed. And that's why it can be different in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example from Adidas, a client we worked with two, two years ago, incredible company, $24 billion, global sportswear brand, you know, and the purpose that we, we looked for with them was around access to sport, bringing more people into sport. Again, not just a nice thing to do, but an incredibly powerful thing to do for their future profitability and growth by having more people who play sport. It's not rocket science. But then we will look globally at the barriers to sport. That's where it became interesting because different countries around the world have different barriers. For some, it could be a cultural taboo, for example, against women and girls playing sport, which is a big problem we saw. Adidas using the power of its advertising to put forward examples of women and girls from those cultures playing sport in an aspirational way can make a dent in cultural values and cultural taboos and change it there. Moving to a different market, in North America, we uncovered another problem. Only 4% of sports stories are about women and girls. Think about that, only 4%. And so you can't be what you can't see. And so that's where, again, the brand could flex its muscles and say, hey, ESPN, hey, Sports Network, we spend a tremendous amount of money with you guys. We'd like to see an uptick in the number of stories about women and girls because it's causing them to drop out of sport at a much higher rate than boys. The hemorrhaging rate, I think, is two or three times that of boys by the time they hit 10 or 11. Like They're just leaving sport because of the taboos. Let's look at your product innovation, Adidas. How can you create products so girls can play sport comfortably when they have their period without any shame or embarrassment? And how do we, again, destigmatize that? So what you see is then this kind of matrix where you can look at every country in the world, you can look at every single barrier to sport in that country, and you can figure out where soccer wants to play or swimming wants to play or tennis wants to play. And you can create a way to use 
all of their assets, their marketing, their product innovation, their athlete endorsements, their power in the media power, and leverage all of those things to break down those barriers. And that's where Malaysia could say, hey, we're going to focus on, uh, I'm making some girls basketball. Whereas in the United States, it could be, uh, we're going to focus on the problem with representation and sport. Every market can then pick where they want to play on this spectrum of issues, but all of that impact can ladder up and be measured to something that's much bigger. And so over time, you can look back and say, here's how we made a dent in this problem in different markets in different ways as well. Well, that uh, segues nicely into my final question, Afdel, which is, can you recommend some of the best ways from your experience to measure the success of purpose initiatives? Which yeah. is still a challenge, and I think a lot of companies do it differently. Yeah, I, I, if you Google my name in the ROI of purpose, you'll see uh, an article I wrote for Forbes where I nerd out about this. this is one of my favorite topics. But <laughs> um, basically, the advice we give is you got to measure purpose multidimensionally, and if you, it helps to almost think about concentric rings in terms of how you could measure purpose. So. Let's take that Sour Patch Kids example from a little earlier ago, right? At the very center of that, if Mondelez was tracking um, how did this affect sales, right? Did this make people more or less likely to buy Sour Patch Kids? That right there at the center of that circle of ROI is revenue and whether these things had a positive impact on sales. Then it comes to brand and consumers like, did this make you more or less likely to want to buy um, Sour Patch Kids? Did you think it was a more socially impactful brand? What did it do to your brand equity, your affinity scores? Then you can look at the corporate reputation of Mondelez. How does this ladder up if it's a publicly traded company? What effect did it have on its share price? Did, you know, at the annual kind of analyst meeting, is this a thing that has a halo effect in terms of seeing the company as a more positive brand? Then you can go to your employees and say, hey, how does this make you feel? Does it make you feel more proud to work for our company? What does it do to retention rates? Oh, look, people are staying longer in this company because they feel like it's in line with their values. We don't need to spend as much money recruiting new people because our existing people are staying with us longer. That's a tangible value to a CHRO. On the reverse of it, what does it do to recruitment? Look, people in job interviews are spontaneously mentioning that ad campaign as a reason that they want to come and work for this company, right? Yep. Huge benefit, huge benefit. And that's before you even get into things like, what does this do to our reputation as a good corporate citizen? What do our other stakeholders think? The communities that we're part of, our vendors, our suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. So my advice is don't measure purpose in a silo and just look at one tiny aspect of it. Take the time to really pull back and realize how all of these different stakeholders are benefiting or can, can find benefit in that thing that you do. That is a much better way to measure the impact of something than in a very narrow way. That's great advice. Afdel Aziz, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for having me. To learn more about the great work of his agency, please visit conspiracyoflove.co. Co. FDL will also be a featured speaker at the ANA Brands for Humanity Conference, March 21st and 22nd. To register, please visit ana.net slash events. 
Until next time, thanks for listening. 